The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12. I was reading an article a few days ago about mistakes that preachers make, and I, I will admit to many mistakes as I'm preaching. And in this author's opinion, one mistake was announcing the text and then waiting for what seems like an hour to read the text. And meanwhile, there are people that are sitting in the pews with their Bibles open, wondering when will he ever get to the text. And I confess that I'm often guilty of that. I like to many times give you long introductions before I actually begin the reading the text that we're going to study. But today, not so much. I want us to look at Luke chapter 12. And our text verses are verses 22 to 34. But let's start up at verse number 13 because this verse is integral to the sermon today. Luke chapter 12, and I'll start with verse number uh, 15. Verse number 15 is where I want to start. No, I'm wrong. I want to start at verse 13. Yeah, let's start at verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made thee a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits in my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be? which thou hast provided. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I'm sure that you recognize that this passage is nearly identical to the earlier reading in our congregational uh, scripture reading from the book of Matthew chapter 6. Now Matthew 6, that passage is part of uh, the most famous and deeply helpful and doctrinal sermons that the world has heard. That was Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, 
Uh, several years ago, going through Matthew, I took 63 sermons to explain uh, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And that shows you how rich that this that passage is and and uh, how preachers have, uh, for centuries, mined the depths of the sermon that Jesus preached. Now, Luke, who wrote this gospel account and also wrote the book of Acts, is known as the New Testament's historian. He is detailed, he is precise with his writing, and beginning in the 11th chapter of, of his gospel, he records much of the same information that Jesus spoke in that famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. But we see that the scene here is different in Luke, so we're not reading a second account of the Sermon on the Mount, but this is an indication that Jesus would often return to the same discussions when he was teaching his disciples. And as I teach you, you know that we often return to the very same subjects because people must be reminded over and over and over again because we fall short of sometimes paying attention or doing what we should do. Our theme today is a subject that Jesus considered must be taught, something that did need to be repeated, because the problem is so prevalent and has been in every generation since the beginning of time. This problem has the potential of derailing the hope and the work of God's people and, and depressing their spiritual growth. The subject is worry. It is anxiety. And in truth, it, it comes down to a very basic fundamental of the Christian life. Do we or do we not implicitly trust God? Now, let me tell you why this subject was so important for 12 men who were called to be the apostles of Christ and the foundation of the church. These were men who were constant companions of Jesus throughout his three years of public ministry. They were with him in boats. You, we read about him on the Sea of Galilee. They were with him on hillsides. They were with him in the valleys. They were with him in towns and villages throughout Israel. They were with him both day and night, often sleeping right beside him. They heard him preach countless times, and they, they saw the multitudes of miracles that he did. They saw the power that he had. They saw also the meekness of Jesus. And yet they tended not to trust. They tended to be skeptics. They tended towards that skepticism and anxiety. They tended to worry. And I would say they tended to be just like us. But they were different from us in this aspect. The day was coming when Jesus would be crucified, the, the one that they had their hope in. He would be crucified and their anxieties would then reach heights that they had not known before. They worried, as all people do. All of us are acquainted with it. All of us do it. It's not a matter of if we will worry. It's just a matter of when. And this is precisely what the sweet psalmist David said in Psalm 56, verse 3. He said, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. It was not, I have not been afraid. Not, I have never been afraid. Not, I won't be afraid. But when I am afraid. And this comes from the man who was unafraid when he was facing the giant Goliath who said that he would feed David's flesh to the birds. And so here, here are these disciples. They're just like us. They tend to be afraid. They tend to anxiety. And here are 12 men who soon would be charged with standing at the forefront of a rejected movement, hated by the world just as Jesus was hated. They would be brought before kings and magistrates, and they must give an account of the gospel that they were strictly forbidden to preach. The question was not, would they be worried and would they be afraid? No, the question was, what will they do when they are worried and afraid? How will they overcome it? And the answer is the same as David's, same answer for us, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. 
One author said, at the heart of it all, anxiety is rooted in trying to care for myself for that which only God can do. Worry reigns in our lives when we think or act as if something is ultimately up to me than up to God. It actually has to do with the desire to control things. During my 11 weeks of absence from the pulpit, I had much time to think. Not as much time as you think I had to think, because the first month I was on so many painkillers that I couldn't do much thinking at all. Uh, At least not cogent, sustained thinking. But then I began to get better, my mind began to clear up. And during this time of being away from you, I, I was depressed about not being in church. I was anxious because Pam was going through a bad spell. And while I was down, she had to be in the hospital. I was anxious because the help that we had during the recovery was soon leaving. And at the same time, there was bad news that kept, come, kept filtering in from the church. The roof is still leaking. The, the ceiling of my office is a mess. The sewer stopped up. A service had to be canceled. There were thoughts about people leaving and how the church would be sustained and what ministry would look like afterwards. And I can tell you there were times when I felt that I couldn't breathe. I, it was very similar, I would think, to panic attacks. And it didn't help that, that I was coming down off the pain medications. And if you've ever experienced that, that's about the worst feeling that you can have. I'm human. And I wouldn't expect you to think, I wouldn't want you to believe for a minute that I'm some kind of superhero that is never affected by anxieties, affected by doubts and worries. And so this message is as much for me as it is for you. In fact, this is the first message, uh, rather than continue my series that I was in right away, the, the, the first message that I wanted to preach was the one last week, but this immediately came to my mind that this would help me as much as it helps you. I hope that it will help you. It was in the midst of all this that I read a daily devotional from Alistair Begg's Truth for Life, and it was as if in the worst of the mental pain, God opened up the truth that I have taught you many times before. In fact, I've had times when I didn't know how to survive. And I was reminded again that we must have trust in God. I was reminded again of the one who is in control. And I was reminded again of these very scriptures that we have before us this morning. These are not the deepest of Jesus' teachings but they are a part of his practical approach to living. These are very simple truths demonstrated again and again and again throughout the scriptures. They're an approach to everyday life for those of us who are real about everyday life. And you know this as well as I do, that we are incapable of living the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. We must be led by God to get through this life in the way that God wants us to. We don't have the strength of endurance, but we do have a way that we can attain it. Now, psychologists say that the only place to go is to strengthen your inner resolve. It's to build trust in yourself. Self, in the end, is all that you have. And so you need to be strong in yourself and do your thing. And yet the world realizes how helpless, hopeless, useless is that advice. It's self that got us into trouble in the first place. We live with self. It's self. It's me. I'm the one who turns over and over in the bed at night not knowing what to do. And that's because self has no mechanism of contentment. There there is no mechanism of solving life's problems. There is no way out. Self can't do that. And you know how, it, how it's been in the past couple of years when people were locked away in their homes with self? What happened in that time? Well, the repercussions are still being felt. Children are, and adults are nearly crazy. Crime is up. Discontentment is up. There is upheaval. The best that we can look forward to is that upheaval that's on our horizon. Things are just getting worse, it seems. So we don't have answers. And we will continue to be depressed and worried and anxious. 
So we experience, we, we are worried. And this text, Jesus says, what will you do? What will worry do for you? Why worry? I'm reminded of a video that I have on my phone from Dakota and, and Bobby's wedding. Mina is on a mechanical bull. And she's bucking up and down and going round and round. And through all the ups and downs and the rounds and rounds, she's going nowhere. This is a bull that, it was a bull that stays in place. Now kudos for staying on. And, and that's like worry. It tosses you up and down. It spins you round and round. It makes you miserable. It makes you unhappy. It hurts. But it goes nowhere. It doesn't help anything and it doesn't change anything. And so if it doesn't help, why do it? And then what do you put in place of it? We can't hide from it. Worry's there. It's real. Jesus said to his people, he said, you are the salt and the light of the world. You are to be different from others. Well, we can neither be salt nor light if we hide ourselves away, if we refuse to be identified with the problems that we have and all the mundane things of life. Christians go through them just like every other person in the world. The world, the Lord never promised that he was going to take sin out of our life completely so that we live above sin and doubts and worries are a part of sin. And we don't get rid of those until we get entirely sanctified and glorified in heaven. That's when all that goes away. And so we live in many ways just like the rest of the world experiencing the same things. But how we handle the things that we go through, how we handle the troubles of life must be different else we do not demonstrate our faith in God. Now if we're, if we're not If we can't escape by hiding ourselves away, then it means that we do have to face these issues. We must deal with our everyday affairs. But as we do, we must relate to them in a godly way so that we satisfy life's requirements. But at the same time, we maintain the right spiritual relationship with God. And sometimes that balancing act can be very difficult. It's hard for us. Some Christians lose the focus and thus the battle So that they are neither good for the spiritual world nor salt and light for this physical world of lost and dying people. Well, as in this text, we find that one of the most prevalent sources of difficulty that leads us into worry is the sustenance, sustaining our physical lives. And most often the place that we are affected is with our material goods. We get preoccupied with the way that we will live, what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, and then we become consumed with worry. Now, I'd like you to look up the page to the parable that Jesus taught. The main point of telling the parable is in verse number 15. And he said unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things He possesseth. The same thought appears again in verse number 23. The life is more than meat and the body more than raiment. Life is more than what you eat and more than the clothes that you wear. It's more than the place that you live. After verse 15 comes the parable and then the teaching of why you shouldn't worry. Well, if your life doesn't consist of your stuff, then why worry about your stuff? Why become covetous about gaining more stuff? Now the question then is, what do we, what do we consume ourselves with? What, what do we concern ourselves with that will lead us away from worry? Well, in a nutshell, the place for us to go, always the place for us to go, and what we must think is that God is sovereign. We, we, we go to God and realize that He is sovereign and that He has a plan and a purpose, and a priority for his people. He made us believers. He gave us the faith. He gave us repentance and faith and brought us to himself. He put us into his plan. And in order to carry out that plan, he must take care of us. He promised that he would take care of us. And so what we must do is to release all this tension that we have of trying to do God's job ourselves. It's his job to take care of us. And we 
must have the faith that he will. And this is essentially what Jesus teaches in this section. He says, don't worry, because God will take care of you. Now, let, let's just go to the scriptures and see the masterful way that, that Jesus explains this. Our text begins in verse number 22. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought. As usual, whenever you have a scripture that begins with therefore, it always means there's a statement that's been made and there is a conclusion that is about to be drawn. Now, in this case, the therefore refers back to verse number 15. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of all the things he possesses. And in verse number 21, it is better for you to be rich toward God than have all the treasures that the world has to offer. If God is your master instead of money and the material, and if you have surrendered yourself to the one who controls and owns it all, if you let God control your life instead of money, then there is no reason to worry about your life. Now, through, through, t through two readings of, of the same principles from both Matthew and Luke, we see that Jesus gives examples that are drawn from nature that teach us why we don't need to worry. Jesus was an illustrator. Now, he didn't always make just blanket statements and, and tell us to take what he says at face value. No, he presents valid arguments, and this is what he does in this text. Now, it should be enough that we would just listen to God. That when God says, do this, then we do it. The command itself, that should be enough because God is God. But as a loving father, God doesn't always do it that way. There are times that he gives reasons, he gives arguments to help us to understand, and through his kindness, he shows us the best way. And as he does that, he cancels out all of the objections and the rebuttals that we would make to his statements. We need to know that we'll never outwit with God. We can't outthink him, so we just pay attention, listen to what he says, and we learn have you noticed that throughout Scripture, God knows that we do have this propensity to ask questions? When somebody tells us to do something, we always want to know why. And this is because God gave us a mind that mirrors his own. We were created in the image of God. He gave us a mind of reason and sanity. So we just naturally ask questions when we're told to do something. So God knows that that's part of the human psyche. He knows the fall ruined implicit trust in him, and so he gives reasons. When I think about this, I, I, I think about the command that God gave Israel to drive out all the inhabitants of Canaan. God said, you must destroy them all. You must get them all out of the land. Now, what he could have said to Moses and Joshua was just give them a simple directive, and that would be the end of it. And, and what he told Moses and Joshua might not have seemed right to them if he told them just do it with no explanation. They would think, why, why does there need to be so much carnage? Why do so many people have to die? Can't we just move into Canaan and make peace and live side by side with these people? And God says, no, that will not work. And God gave the reasons. He says, if you don't drive them all out, then you'll start to marry their daughters. You'll start taking on their customs. And then you will serve their gods. God has reasons for what he commands. Well, Jesus is God and he follows that, that pattern. He gives illustrations to help us to understand the reasons. He says, there are birds... In this passage, ravens. In the Matthew passage, birds. But he says, there are birds that don't worry. There are flowers in the field that don't worry. And since you're better than them and you have a relationship with God they don't have, you don't need to worry. Well, the second part of the beginning before we get to our outline is this phrase, take no thought. And I, I hope that you've already deduced what that means because I've already interpreted it as meaning worry. At the time the King James was translated, this was a common way of saying worry. Take no thought, men, don't be anxious, don't let it bother you, uh, don't give it undue consideration, or simply don't worry. 
And here's another way that the King James says the same thing. In Philippians 4, verse 6, Paul wrote, Be careful for nothing. VSV modernizes that by saying, Don't be anxious about anything. So take no thought means don't worry. Well, we're ready to begin the exposition of the text. It'll take us three weeks to get through this. The first observation I want to give you today is the preparation of life. The preparation of life. Sometimes when understanding a text, we need to get at what the text doesn't mean before we see what it does mean. Does this teach, is Jesus saying that we don't need to make any preparations? When he says, take no thought, does that mean that we're just always to be carefree, that we are to be flighty? Uh, It would be a good idea to put a flower behind your ear and just skip through life? Does it mean that all the things that you think about and are concerned about are taboo? You're not to think about those things anymore. Does it mean that, well, you don't really think about making house payments and and you don't need to be concerned yourself with a car payment and buying groceries or any other concern that you have? Does, Does he mean none of these things matter? So does he say don't ever think about those things? Well, if that's what he means, then we would have trouble interpreting many other parts of the Bible. If you come to me and you say, you know, you know Pastor Smith, I'm, I'm having some financial difficulties. So I got my Bible, I began reading the Bible, and God said that he will take care of me. And Jesus said, take no thought for these things. And so I just quit my job a few months ago. Now I don't have any money to buy groceries. Will God take care of me? Do you really think that Jesus would say that? Would he say, no, you don't need to work? Is he saying you don't need to think about that? You don't need to think about how you're going to make a mortgage payment? You don't need to think about how you're going to put food on the table or buy shoes for the kids? No, because the scriptures have already told us, or it tells us later, that if you don't work, then you don't eat. You must go to work. You must make those preparations, and you must make them for you and all those other feet that are under your table. Solomon wrote about this ten centuries before Christ. He said in Proverbs, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Well, Solomon says that an ant has more sense than many people. The ant knows he'll starve to death if he doesn't make his preparations. Now, in our text, it would be birds, the ravens. The birds aren't anxious about things. They don't worry, but they still fly around looking for worms. They still build their nest. They still protect their young. And you see what God does. He puts the worms in the ground. He provides the materials for the nest. God doesn't drop worms from the sky into the bird's mouth. He doesn't have angels put nests in the trees for the birds to live in. Oh, the birds take care of all that. They're industrious enough to make their preparations. I think if Solomon could see our society today, that he would wonder, what's happened? What is the strange state of these people? What is going on here? Uh, And and the apostles, if the apostles could see what's going on and what's, what's happened to many of their teachings, they would just scratch their heads. Paul said, but... But if any provide not for his own, this is 1 Timothy 5, but if any provide not for his own, especially those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. That sounds like preparation, doesn't it? 2 Corinthians 12, 14, he says, Behold, the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. In other words, Paul wasn't there to take anything from them, like he wanted that support. For I seek not yours, but you. I don't want what you have, I want you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Now what Paul is talking about, there is his care for the Corinthians, that he was their father in the Lord, and he took care of their spiritual spiritual welfare. But I think what we can do is extend the last part of his sentence to make a point for our lesson that this is also about preparedness and industriousness. It's serious enough that, that Paul ties it to faith. And he says a person that is so carefree 
to think that others will take care of him is not a person of faith. He is an infidel. This doesn't show great faith because you say, well, I'm just going to quit everything and see what God does for me. That's not faith. That is a blasphemous thing for a Christian to do. We are to be an industrious people. And this is what he says in 1 Timothy. God expects us to work. And yet we look at our society and we see that we built a welfare state. I'm not against welfare. I believe that we ought to care for those that are truly needy. But I also believe the Bible more than I do political parties and what they say about these things. Able-bodied people ought to work. It is your responsibility to provide for your family. And if you can work, you ought not to lay back and just collect that check from the government. We should be working. So Jesus doesn't teach that if you don't care for yourself, well, don't, don't be concerned about that. Somebody will do it for you. Now, in his day, there were multitudes of beggars. There was no social outlet, no programs from the government. So if they didn't eat or didn't work, they didn't eat. And thus, those that couldn't work or wouldn't work were reduced to begging. Well, again, I know there are some that are truly helpless. And the Bible teaches we ought to help others, help those who genuinely need help. The scriptures demand that we help others. And it tells us, especially for those who are in our own church. Now, God built into his kingdom a program for the needy. In the Mosaic Law, God taught his people to be compassionate. Be compassionate for those who are poor and need help. Leviticus is a book of laws, and I want you to listen to this law that God gave Israel. Leviticus 23, verse 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest. That means don't cut the wheat down all the way into the corners. Make a clean cut of all of it. Thou shalt, uh, and neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now God said when you go in the field to harvest your crops, don't cut it down perfectly. Don't cut it all down, even going into the corners of the field. Leave that part standing. And then as you're bundling your wheat and, and some of it falls to the ground, don't pick it up. Just leave it there. Leave it there. And leave that for the poor and the stranger who has no field, but he must feed his family. Now, that was God's system of helping the poor. The poor would go out in the fields after the harvest, and they would cut down those corners, and they would pick up what was left, and they would use that to feed their families. So the Israelites were not to be so selfish that they kept everything for themselves. And I can think you can see a little bit of that, even though it's not Jesus' main point in the parable that we just read in Luke chapter 12. But there was a man that had so much that, that he didn't know what to do with it all. How was he going to keep it all? So I'll just build bigger barns. Now, that would have been a perfect place. I, I didn't write the Bible. Uh, but in my own thinking, uh, that would be a perfect place maybe for Jesus to have said, you know, what about all that excess? Why didn't he just give it away? Why don't he just invest it in the Lord's work? Why keep it all for himself? But he was just going to build bigger barns. Well, I just threw that in there. Maybe that's a little something we can learn from it. You notice, though, that God, in the, in the laws that he gave in Leviticus, that he didn't say, pick up the leftovers, bundle them up, and take it to the poor. No, he didn't say that. Because the poor man was also to work. He had to go into the field and make the effort. Now, I think we see in this something that fits our text. First, God never speaks against a farmer plowing his ground, planting his crops, harvesting those crops, making all the preparations that he needs. You are to be industrious. You are to work for what you receive. So we don't sit back and expect that God will drop food in our mouths or DoorDash food to our house every day. Now, secondly, if you're poor and you don't have a field, maybe you don't have what others have, you can expect... That somehow, some way, there is provision waiting for you. You don't need to worry about it because God has a way to feed you. So you keep looking, you keep searching, you keep busy, stay faithful to what God says, and His Word says you're not going to starve to death. God will provide. And I also add this, keep praying. Keep praying, keep asking. 
Because Jesus said, you know, a lot of times you don't have what you need because you never did ask for it. You just don't pray about it. Now, I know this is a very tough economy. Prices are rising. <clears throat> Discontent is keeping up with it. It may not be that you're kept in a comfortable lifestyle that you've enjoyed in this past economic boom. You may have to shut off the cable TV. You may not be able to afford for somebody to mow your lawn. You may not have the latest iPhone with the greatest cell phone plan. I'm sorry, you might have to use an Android. But if that's the case, I mean, that's what God provides, and then that's what you do. Now, you might then have to downsize from, from all the luxuries. You may have to drive an 89 Ford instead of a 2022 Tahoe. God will put food in your mouth. He will put a roof over your head, clothes on your back. The key is accepting the way that God thinks you need to be supplied as opposed to the way that you think that you need to be supplied. So no, Jesus is not talking about being unprepared. He doesn't say, well, you know, all you really need to do is lay on the couch in your dirty bathrobe with your beer belly and watch reality TV all afternoon. Just do that. But what he is saying is that you don't need to be preoccupied with food, shelter, and clothing to the point of focusing only on those things. They are not the primary portion of your life. Alexander McLaren, who was a contemporary of Spurgeon, said that foresight and foreboding are two very different things. So you can think about what you need, you can prepare to survive, but you don't need to be so worried that it consumes your thinking and becomes debilitating. You don't need to ride the bull every night. Preparation is okay. The Bible doesn't teach against it. Now, secondly, this is as far as we'll get into the text today. Number two is the composition of life. The composition. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Now, what we have in this text, this, this is full of carefully crafted arguments and skillful reasoning. How often do we pick up the Bible, we read it mindlessly, and we don't really think about the statements that are made or try to get in the depths of what, what the, what's being said. We want to find a deeper meaning. How many times do we just read it, we skim over it, and we just don't explore it as we should? What Jesus does here is to use a logical argument which is called arguing from the lesser to the greater. The Latin term for it is a fortiori argument. That's if you're an American, that's the way that you would say that, a fortiori. If you're British, you'd say it a little bit differently. But a fortiori argument, it basically unfolds like this. If God is so careful for the lesser, how much more does he care for the greater? Now, we'll see this as he goes on. He says, if God does this for the birds that are lesser, won't he do it for you who are greater? If he does this for the lilies in the field who are the lesser, or what is the lesser, won't he do this for you, who are the greater? Now, the first instance of this argument is in verses 22 and 23. Should you worry about what you eat, the lesser, what you wear, the lesser, when life itself, which is the greater, when the body itself, which is greater, is a much higher consideration for God? Jesus illustrates that in separate examples. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Well, before we look closer at this, I want to show you another demonstration of this principle of argument from the Apostle Paul. Let's turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. This is one of my favorite passages, as you know, uh, and you know it well because we've read the first part of it so much that it ought to be tattooed on your brain. But I'd like you to look at verse number 28 and following, and then we'll see how Paul's argument can be superimposed upon the text in Luke chapter 12. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, you're so familiar. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren." Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. 
What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This is one of the greatest, most comforting passages in Scripture. What we see here is God's plan from eternity past to eternity future. Paul says that we are called according to God's purpose. Now, since we belong to God and we are in his plan and purpose, then he must work out everything in our lives somehow for our good to fulfill his good purpose. Now, we might not understand his method at the moment. There might be trouble. There may be something that you're going through. And what God will do is use that to refine you, to edify you, and in some way to glorify Him. What He won't do many times is pull you out of the circumstance. He may not take sickness away from you. He may not get you out of financial troubles, but He will make a way through it that will glorify Him. And I would ask anyone who is poor or anyone who is rich... You're still here, aren't you? You're still here, no matter how poor, how rich. I couldn't talk to you if you weren't here. Then he goes on, and he speaks about God for knowing us, which means loving us beforehand, choosing us beforehand. He speaks of God predestinating the course of our lives so that we will become like Christ. And then in time, he calls us by his marvelous grace. He justifies us by faith in in Jesus Christ. And then he stretches all of this into the future, saying that we're on our way to glorification in heaven. And each of those steps begins with the original purpose that God planned in eternity past. He implements every part of his plan as we go through our lives. And that's from giving us the word that produces faith by the power of the Holy Spirit until the final day of our completion, the completion of our salvation in heaven. Through all of this, God orchestrates our lives. And now he comes to verse number 31. And he says, God has done all this for you. He's the great God of the universe. He possesses all power. If God is on your side, who can stand against you? Or we might say, if God is on your side, what does it matter who stands against you? And then there's the lesser to the greater argument in reverse. Basically the same logic as Luke 12. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God gave you his greatest gift. He sent his own son into the world to redeem you, to die for you. He gave the greatest that heaven could offer. And if he gave the greatest, then what lesser thing would he withhold from you? Do you see the argument? If you get all of these outstanding benefits from God, even Christ himself, then what little nitpicky thing will God say, well, that's just too much for me. I can't afford that. Wait a minute, just wait. He just gave the exalted Christ. He gave the polished diamond of heaven. Do you think he's going to wince at a bubblegum ring? That's the argument. Now let's take that back to Luke 12 and put that argument on top of what Jesus says in verses 22 and 23. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on, The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. What is the composition of life? Is it just food? Is it just clothing? Is it shelter? Where did you get your life? Why are you so worried about the peripheral things? Just stop for a moment and consider life itself. Where did you get your life? Where does it come from? Did you give yourself life? Well, if you depend on God for life, why not depend upon him for the much lesser, that which sustains life? The psalmist said, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 100, verse 3. 
Now, the logic of this, folks, is just astounding. It is so simple, yet so profound. God made you. God gave you life. You are the sheep of his pasture. You are his birds in the air. You are his lilies of the field. God made you, and he gave you life. God gave you a heart that pumped your blood. He gave you arms and hands and legs and feet. He gave you a brain and a nervous system to control all your functions. He gave you all of this to make you an instrument. scientist who believes that, that life is the product of randomly combined chemicals. I have no patience for the ignorant who thinks a, a fish grew legs and walked out of the water and then over time turned into this complex organism called man who has the power of reason or the power of idiocy and believes he came from an ape. It's amazing that God tolerates all of this and takes time to develop arguments to stupid humans so that we can understand why he does what he does. It's amazing that God puts up with this. That in itself is a testimony to his love, his mercy, and his grace. It's a testimony to it that I could even talk to you about this today. You know, there are many Christians who who put a fish on the back of their car. Fish is an ancient symbol of Christianity. And you've seen this. You know, the atheists didn't like the fish, so they made a fish with feet on it. And inside the fish, it says Darwin. There's a competition going on here. So now we have the Christian with a bigger fish that eats the Darwin fish. And unfortunately for many Christians, the fish on the car is the highest expression in their life of their Christianity. That's about all there is to it, a fish on the back of the car. Well, it's going to be that one day for sure. One day, one day God will gobble, us, gobble up all the little Darwinists. He'll expose their ignorance and their defiance. He'll demonstrate his truth not only with a heaven for the redeemed, but a hell for the reprobate. No one has an excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now back to our argument. You are alive as a testimony to God's power. He gave you the gift of life. So do you now think that God will abandon you? And he will say, well, let's just see how they survive on their own. Does it make sense that God would create you, give you life, send his son to die for you, give you spiritual life so that you could be a, be a trophy of his grace, to live and breathe for him? Does it make sense that he will let you wither away? Well, now we, we put Paul's argument on top of this. God has common grace for everyone. Jesus said he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. But Paul's argument is not, folks, his argument is not about common grace. This is centered on God's elect people. This is special redeeming grace that Paul speaks of. Now, my next statement is for born-again believers in Jesus Christ. And I think most of you are. Do you think that God would give you life? That he would put you into his plan and his purpose from the eternity past? That he would send his only begotten son from the glories of heaven to allow him to be beaten beyond recognition, that he would allow him to be spat upon and hit with sticks and thorns driven down into his his brow, that he would allow nails to be driven into his hands and his feet, that he would let him hang between heaven and earth, that he'd be raised to the sky to hang there on a Roman cross with the weight of sin and hell and infinite suffering placed upon him, would he allow him to die such an agonizing death and then put him into the grave and raise him on the third day? Do you think that God would do all of that and say, Oh well, let those for whom Christ died, died starve. I paid this astounding redemption price for them, the highest price that could be paid, but I will let them rot. Maybe you don't have more sense than that, but God does. For you to doubt God, to pout and worry and wring your hands wondering what you will do and spend your time focusing on chicken wings and Levi jeans and Michael Jordan gym shoes, that's next to blasphemy for a child of God. What does he plan for you? It's great. Read it in verse number 32. What does he plan for you? It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus says, what is the competition of your life? The composition. Isn't it more 
than all this stuff? Is it more than food and clothing? You see the argument? He doesn't just say so, which should be enough. He illustrates it. He drives the point home. Therefore, take no thought. Therefore, don't be anxious. Therefore, don't worry. Now, friend, if you are a child of God, you should never take your focus off God, the one who gave you your body, the one who gave you life. Never take your focus off God and think that you need to do God's job. Well, that's a start on the passage. It's just, it's just sound practical teaching that will change your life if you get down inside of you. It sure helps me. It sure helps me in those times when I don't know what's going to happen next. It really doesn't matter a whole lot when God's in control. Whatever it is, it's going to be for his glory. Somehow, some way, it'll work out that way. I truly do believe that. Let me close then with this. Some people say, well, I'm not so sure about a sermon like this on Sunday morning because what you ought to do is to preach an evangelistic message. Oh, well, I would have to ask you, has this been evangelistic? Can't a lost sinner see that eternal things are more important than temporal things? Can a lost person not see what God did in giving his only son to die on the cross to pay for our sins? Can you not see that Paul said God spared not his own son? That he gave you his greatest gift to redeem you from sin. And in the belief of that is a promise that if you will believe, you will be saved. And then you will be God's to order and sustain. Every message should have Christ in it. And this has the sacrificial redeeming work of Christ all over it. You have a special relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's written all over the passage. So none of this works. We would have no sense in this passage whatsoever. Wouldn't even need to bother to read it. None of it makes sense if God doesn't do the greater, giving his only begotten son so that you would understand the lesser. He will take care of you. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Let's pray. Father, we are... So thankful for the word that we read today. I hope that there is encouragement here for Christians that, that tend to worry. We all do, some more than others. And there is a way out of it. It's just simply to turn to you, let you do what you promised that you would do, believe that you will do it, take away those doubts and the fears and all that we have. What time I am afraid I will trust in you. Lord, I pray that that would be the prayer of every person here. Lord, show me the way. Help me to depend on you. Help me to be a person of greater faith. Lord, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, I ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would draw them, would prick their heart with the truth of God's Word, bring them to repentance and faith today, and we will rejoice in it. Thank you, Lord. Bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.